Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No Trump. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaigns. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thanks for joining us again this week. A lot to talk about Nancy Pelosi and the January 6th scandal. And it is a scandal that involves Nancy Pelosi. I'll talk about that. Uh, We have a major civil rights lawsuit on behalf of a teacher who was fired for daring to criticize BLM rioting. Uh, We have another lawsuit over critical race theory, this time in our nation's military, and an important court filing in a related issue, frankly, which is required sex quotas on corporate boards in California. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do in California. And of course, Judicial Watch is taking the lead in court, uh, opposing it. First up, I think I'm going to talk about is the January 6th craziness, which is the uh, effort by uh, the left and uh, partisans, uh, Nancy Pelosi and others, uh, to take uh, what happened on January 6th, that disturbance, and use it as a political vehicle and uh, legal vehicle to intimidate, harass, and target uh, and punish its uh, their political enemies. And to that end, they obviously tried to impeach uh, President Trump, which was a big failure. And they've also um, in- instigated a new January 6th select committee in the House, which is, um, and, it's, and the rules for the committee are written in a way to give Nancy Pelosi all the power. But to that end, Nancy Pelosi appointed uh, Democrat members. One of the Democrat members she appointed was a Republican, ironically, Lynn Cheney, who infamously uh, voted uh, uh, to impeach uh, President Trump over the January 6th issue. Now, the Republicans get to pick their own people for the commission or for the committee. And uh, Minority Leader McCarthy picked five, I think five Republicans, two of whom were Jim Jordan, who is the uh, ranking member, the minority uh, member uh, leader in the House Government Reform Committee, or maybe it's Judiciary Committee. It doesn't really matter. He's a major leader in the House, and he's effective. Also is Jim Banks, who runs... um, He's head of what's called the Republican Study Committee, which is a a big caucus, um, nominally conservative caucus in the House of Representatives. So another Republican leader. And Nancy Pelosi, looking at the rules that she recognizes, she has the ability to throw off members. And she said that uh, Jordan and Banks can't be on the commission, can't be on the committee. So McCarthy, in response, uh, he said that, well, there'll be no Republicans on the committee. You can, you can go ahead and, and do this sham on your own. So that, that's where things stand. But I want to highlight something for you. 
is that this committee isn't just about politics. It's about your civil liberties in the sense that you can expect the committee to target you, people you support politically, maybe your friends and family, over their support either for Donald Trump, questions about the election, or frankly, given the way the left is these days, questions about anything. Uh, Adam Schiff, as you may recall, Judicial Watch uh, has been battling in court over, uh, Adam Schiff um, battling in court over his abuse of a power in the House, where he unilaterally introduced uh, or, or issued subpoenas targeting the phone records of Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer at the time. And he took those phone records secretly without court authorization and then published them. And, you know, by taking someone's phone records, you can get other people's phone records, right? If you're talking to person X, Y, and Z, well, it looks like other phone records that he got as a result of this illicit act included Devin Nunes, uh, a fellow member of Congress, John Solomon, a reporter, other Trump attorneys, really abuse of uh, power there. And of course, he published those records. And they, in Judicial Watch's litigation, have made the argument that Pelosi, Schiff House, has said they have unbridled authority to issue subpoenas for pretty much anything they want to do. So do you think they're not going to issue secret subpoenas here and not try to get phone records and not try to get internet records? Maybe even they'll get medical records. I don't know. I don't know. So we can presume the worst in terms of of being a a clear and present danger to our civil liberties and our privacy and our constitutional rights. And on top of that, the corruption is that Nancy Pelosi should be investigated by, quote, any committee investigating January 6th, close quote. Because Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, has significant authority over the operations and security of the Capitol complex. And it was her decision-making, in part, that resulted in lack security, inadequate security. Uh, You may recall that the National Guard could have been used, the military could have been used, other options were available that were all rejected, it looks like. And so they had um, a police force that was undermanned for the situation. And Nancy Pelosi is responsible for that decision making. So is she going to be questioned? Of course not. So we've got now a completely partisan committee. Well, I shouldn't say completely because Lynn Cheney who uh, was thrown out as leader of the Republicans, as a leader of Republicans, is on the committee. But, you know, it's essentially it's anti-Trump, anti-conservative, anti-anyone who dares to question how the elections were handled, uh, is now going to go to town. So that all being said, well, what to do? Well, A, we need to hold Congress accountable for what went on, figure out what really went on. And B, to the degree there needs to be an investigation of what went on, my view is uh, the most concerning aspect of what went on, obviously, to the degree there was violence and other related unlawful activity, it's being pursued with a vengeance by the Justice Department in such a way as to violate, potentially it looks like, based on 
every every uh, uh, various press reports and, and other information out there, they're violating the rights of people who have been accused here or treating them differently if they were involved in similar protests that resulted in illegal activity. Uh, I mean, I was, I was at the Kavanaugh hearings. I saw the violence and the intimidation and learned of the assaults that were taking place by the left and their attempts to blow up the Senate and stop Kavanaugh from being confirmed. There was no similar Justice Department or federal investigation of the participants there. Typically what happens in protests like that, and I witnessed resisting arrest. I knew there were assaults that were taking place. They were obstructing the proceedings, just like it's being alleged on January 6th. But they didn't have any charges like the ones being brought. Typically, they got a $50 fine. They were released almost immediately, and they could even come back into the building at one point. That's what would happen. Now, do I think that means that everyone who, for instance, assaulted a police officer should be created with gloves? No, of course not. But of course, you already know that. You know that if someone significant committed a significant violent crime, they should be prosecuted. But you also know, I suspect, that people who walked up into the Capitol didn't commit violence to get into the Capitol, arguably didn't knowingly or practically speaking, violate the law in doing so, should they be treated as if they were violent criminals who are a threat to our nation? I don't, I don't think so. And so I'm concerned that some of the prosecutions involve that category of individual. So what is Judicial Watch doing? Well, we're doing what Congress, if it was honest, would have been doing. We're doing what the media, if it were honest, would be doing. We'd be doing what the executive branch, if weren't being corruptly warned, would be doing, which is trying to figure out what really went on. For instance, we've sued for the videotapes, the 14,000 hours we're now being told, of the videotapes and, and, and emails also from uh, the Capitol Police and elsewhere of that day. Where are the videotapes? Where's the video? These are our documents. These are our videos. We paid for them. Don't tell us we can't have them. We're a court over it. We're suing for information on the on the death of Ashley Babbitt. Who shot Ashley Babbitt? Why is that a secret? The U.S. Capitol Police, and this, of course, is not being talked about in January 6th, has zero transparency requirements that other Police departments are expected to follow. U.S. Capitol Police is uh, uh, is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, we've had to sue them um, uh, directly to get access to information under a different law, the common law right of public access to government documents. So you can imagine how that's going to be a challenge. No one's talking about the lack of transparency from the police department. Who shot Ashley Babbitt? Can you imagine another shooting where the police officer's name would be not disclosed or we wouldn't get any report about what happened? So we sued, and I suspect we'll file, file additional lawsuits, the D.C. Police Department, which presumably would have investigated this, for information there. 
We sued on the death of Officer Sicknick. Remember the left lied and the leaguers lied that he died as a result of being pummeled and smashed on the head with a fire extinguisher, when in fact, we now know he died as a result of a stroke that took place well after the event. And it was only after we sued that the Office of Medical Examiner for D.C. finally released the final report that he had been sitting on, it looks like, that Officer Sicknick died of natural causes, which, of course, hurt the narrative about January 6th that someone, that those rioters murdered a police officer. They didn't. You know, the left isn't happy with the truth. I mean, just think, let's say you, let's say, look, your opponent's political supporters engage in violence. Now, from a political perspective, what are you going to do? You're going to try to take advantage of that. And so what do you do? To me, at least if you're honest, you say, this political movement resulted in violence, and here's the violence. But that's never satisfactory for them in terms of just sticking to the facts and trying to make your political case within reason, they have to say, oh, no, they murdered police officers. When, in fact, that didn't take place. And it's still being talked about as if that happened. And then we had the news about General Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is a political operative, uh, even though he's supposed to be a military general who doesn't involve himself in politics. Um, he's he's seemingly leaking that he is, was calling Trump and his supporters Nazis. I mean, the variations of the theme. And, uh, you know, how he was prepared to thwart President Trump if he did anything wrong. Well, part of that work with, was working with Nancy Pelosi to undermine the chain of command, it looks like to me, and communicating directly with her. So we asked for and have sued for information about that communication. Nancy Pelosi calling the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to think of ways to thwart President Trump from launching nuclear missiles. That's just crazy town, isn't it? Crazy town. And they're hiding the records from us. So this is what I love about Judicial Watch. This is the sort of thing that Congress, for obvious reasons, isn't going to do because they have a political narrative, at least the majority of leading things. Uh, the Republicans are you know, don't have the power to investigate it even if they did. And then we all know how that goes even when they do have the power. So it's up to Judicial Watch to come in and again do the heavy lifting on what the left tells us is the most important day in American history, January 6th. Well, if it's so important, why is Nancy Pelosi hiding records? Why is the Biden administration hiding records? Wouldn't they want all the truth to come out? No. That's not what this is about. That is not what this is about. So I, I, I go over this again because A, it's important, and B, your rights are at risk because they're using January 6th, in addition to other policy debates, COVID, elections, uh, it doesn't matter, cultural debates, uh, to as an excuse to surveil censor and suppress you not only just online but at your banking 
at your post office. They have, we sued to get the, what the post, the post office is monitoring social media posts. That was the report. We sued for that. We had information that banks were turning over financial data on countless American citizens just in a free, free willing, free willing way to the FBI. We sued the FBI. So as Congress fights over this makeup of this January 6th commission, Judicial Watch is out there actually with its nose to the grindstone trying to get the truth. And we're in court now on your behalf and on behalf of the rule of law and our constitutional order. And I'm proud to be able to do it. And I don't just say that because I'm president, because I'm a citizen. And I'm a patriot. And what an honor it is to be able to be at an organization and help lead it on these core issues related to our Republican form of government. You know, so we're we're involved and we're, I, I think it's fair to say, we're the most important group in Washington, D.C., in terms of policing what the government's up to, getting information out to the American people, holding the government to account. But we also help everyday Americans in our work. And um, I told you, uh, you already know, or you may know about the case we filed, the federal civil rights case on behalf of uh, a coach up in Massachusetts, a football coach who was fired after he objected to critical race theory and Black Lives Matter propaganda in his daughter's ancient history class. And he gets fired as football coach. His daughter's in a different college school, goes to seventh grade, and he's exercising his rights as a parent and citizen. And he gets fired in retaliation after exercising his First Amendment rights to speak and to, and to petition your government, or his government in this case. You remember, the First Amendment is more than just about political speech. It's about the right to petition your government, meaning ask questions, right, and demand accountability. And he was fired. So we're honored to represent him. We're also suing, we just filed a new lawsuit on behalf of a teacher in Illinois who was fired after she posted She's on, I think she was on vacation. She posted some Facebook posts, critical of the violent riots that were going on at the time in Chicago, uh, statement supportive of the Second Amendment, and other things that you're not allowed to uh, think or have an opinion about in the world controlled by the left. And her school district fired her for it. So we filed a civil rights lawsuit. Uh, in the Northern District of Illinois for uh, Gene Hedgepeth, Hedgepeth, excuse me, who was fired by a suburban Chicago school district. It's a school district, I think it's within Cook County, for criticizing the riots, violence, and shooting, shootings in the aftermath of the killing of uh, George Floyd. So uh, she made the post on her personal Facebook page while vacationing after the end of the school year, just as much as some of the most severe violence was breaking out. She also uh, promoted uh, 
and recommended studying Tom Solwell, who is uh, one of my favorite public intellectuals, Black American. Um, and she described him as a treasure and a truth seeker, and that's true. And she also praised political commentator and activist Candace Owens, who I think the world of and uh, who is always viciously attacked because she's a black conservative. Not only is she a black conservative, uh, but she tells the truth and effectively in a, in a way that few others can match. And a uh, longtime talk show host, and he's now a candidate, Larry Elder, who's another uh, a black conservative. And uh, this lawsuit that we filed for her has been filed under, um, it's, it's what's really the law is the Ku Klux Klan Act that prevents government officials from targeting you uh, for exercising your, your rights under the law, under the Constitution. And it's a First Amendment related claim. And this is, I'm going to read from the complaint. In late May and early June 2020, Hedgepeth was vacationing in Florida after the end of the 2019-20 school year when violent street protests, rioting, looting, and shootings erupted in Chicago and many other U.S. cities in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, by Minneapolis police officers. In Chicago alone, 82 persons were shot, 19 fatally, over the May 30th, 30th, 31st, 2020 weekend. On May 31st, 2020, which, Chicago, which the Chicago Times uh, sometimes described as the most violent day Chicago has seen in 60 years, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who, by the way, we're also suing for a reporter who was denied access to her based on his race, so that's another civil rights lawsuit, asked Governor J.B. Pritzker to deploy the Illinois National Guard to the city. That same day, Hesbeth posted the following photos of herself on the beach in Florida, along with the comment, I don't want to, and the, and the photos of her are sitting on the beach with her sunglasses on, you know, having a good time. Uh, I don't want to go home tomorrow. Now that the Civil War has begun, I want to move. An individual responded, follow your gut, move. Hedgebeth answered, I need a gun and training. The individual replied, me too. Another individual posted a meme that same day suggesting the riots could be stopped with a septic tank truck and a pressure cannon. Hedgebeth reposted the meme obviously in jest, adding, you think that would work? So that's the sort of stuff they wanted to, they, not they wanted to, they actually fired her for. On or about May, uh, June 1st, 2020, she posted the following comment on Facebook in the course of an exchange of posts begun the previous day with the third individual. And this is what she wrote. And I'm going to share it with you because it, it highlights the outrageousness and, and the obviousness of what they didn't like about what she was saying. Uh, I am about facts, truth-seeking, and love. I will speak on any topic I choose because I live in a free country. I find the term white privilege as racist as the N-word. You have not walked in my shoes either, so do not make assumptions about me and my so-called privilege. If you think America is racist, then you've been hoodwinked by the white liberal establishment and race baiters like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Travel the world and go see that every nation has racism and some more than others, but few make efforts such as we do to mitigate or eliminate it. I have lived and seen the people I, have I am informed by about the black experience in America are actually some of the smartest people in America. And it so happens they are black. I highly recommend studying Thomas Solwell, 
who's now retired and in his 80s, a treasure, a truth seeker, does real research and analysis. Candace Owens is one of the smartest and most courageous women in America, and Larry Elder speaks the truth about with a with a great sense of humor and facts. She capitalizes facts, not feelings. They are the, they they are who I listen to when it comes to facts about the black experience in America. Don't you think that there is a deeper problem than racism when fifty percent of murders in America? Are committed by 13% of the population. Do you think that there might be subtle genocide of black babies when most Planned Parenthoods are put in poor neighborhoods and that 30% of abortions are black babies? Black women only make up 7% of the U.S. population. The greatest power you have about what you believe, uh, the greatest power you have about is what you believe about yourself. What have Democrats, mainstream media, intellectuals, and ivory towers been telling the black community to believe about themselves for 40 years. Wake up and stop believing them, then things will change. All of her posts were on her Facebook post page, her personal Facebook page. None of them identified her as a teacher, nor did she post them in her capacity as a teacher. So these political statements that she was making about the Second Amendment, about pro-life, about her agony for the black community, her praise of black leaders, her concerns about crime. You may agree or disagree with them, but they're obviously First Amendment statements, uh, obviously statements protected by the First Amendment. And they called her in. They said they were investigating. She came back from vacation. They said they were investigating her for her Facebook post. And she was fired six weeks later by a vote of five to two. You know, when she, when she went in and talked to the initial investigator, she said that uh, this was on my personal Facebook page and they were made out of school and she expressly Noted she has First Amendment rights to make statements like this. I mean, it wasn't like she was in school saying this. She's on vacation. But they fired her anyway. I voted five to two. So at least two people didn't ignore the record before them. And as I said, the school district took what could have been a teachable moment about respecting diversity of viewpoints because the left targeted her over those statements. They figured out, I guess, she was a teacher and went after her. And they had this, and they, they, the school district started perusing her social media. Again, teachable moment about respecting diversity of viewpoints, and they turned it into a clear civil rights violation. Jean Hedgebeth has every right to express herself freely and openly on her personal Facebook page outside of school about matters of undeniable public concern. Firing her for opposing lawlessness, speaking out about gun rights, praising black conservatives and criticizing Democrats and tenants of critical race theory violated her First Amendment, violated the First Amendment. And the school district and district officials who did so will be held accountable. And uh, we have a council out there that we're working with, Christine Benson, who's worked with us on other cases out there. She's just a great attorney, very, very uh, 
very reliable um, uh, colleague on on matters such as these. And I hope that, you know, Christine and Tezbeth were on Laura Ingram this week, and I hope you were able to catch it. And I don't know if we have a link to it available or not, but I think there's a story about it. You know, and and they did a great job, as you might imagine, talking about the case. But my favorite part of it was, and I think this might be your favorite part, is that Ms. Hedgebeth said, you know, she was looking for legal counsel for months and she couldn't find a lawyer to take her case because they were all afraid. And of course, who ultimately took our case, her take, case? My attorney colleagues at Judicial Watch. Judicial Watch stepped up. And uh, I'm so pleased we were able to do that. And as those of you who support Judicial Watch, you should be pleased and give yourself a pat on the back. This is how your support helps everyday Americans who are being victimized by the left. It's not just our children. It's our teachers. It's folks in our military. It's people working in corporations. It's employees of the government generally who are being targeted with this propaganda and as importantly being punished if they don't want to play ball with it. And in the case of Machetsbeth, just talking about politics in the general sense can get her fired. It's not appropriate. It's wrong. It's illegal. And that's why we're in court. And, uh, you know, we just filed the lawsuit, so it takes time to get through the court process, but we're going to keep on pushing. So uh, on, a, on another matter and related, uh, Judicial Watch also sued, in, uh, sued the Pentagon for information on CRT propaganda being used to um, uh, uh, being used in educating our rising uh military leadership in West Point. I mean, you're not going to believe this stuff. Well, I guess you will. We filed the FOIA lawsuit. And again, this is the Freedom of Information Act, which those of you who don't know, and I just sometimes I know, I assume uh, that people know what I mean, but the Freedom of Information Act is a federal law that allows groups like Judicial Watch and individuals and others to ask questions of the government, give us documents about topic X. And if the agencies that are covered by law don't respond, ignore the request or withhold documents improperly, we can go to court, go to federal court and try to get uh, try to get the documents out and uh, hold the government accountable for any withholdings they seek to make. Because they have to not only explain it to us, but they have to convince the court that it's reasonable. So it's very effective, and they rely on people giving up when they're ignored. And what Judicial Watch has done, which has been, which is part of our brilliance here, dare I say it, is that we sue. We sue for documents. We sue for documents in in numbers, in terms of lawsuits uh, that make us the number one Freedom of Information Act litigator in America. Number one, hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits. We were number one in the Clinton administration, you can bet. We were number one in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. And I suspect we'll continue to be number one during the Biden administration. So there was uh, some, um, there was a congressman 
Mike Waltz, who is a Republican out of Florida, he's a West Point grad, uh, and he highlighted that uh, uh, the, the Corps of Cadets was being mandated to attend seminars and presentations on critical race theory that included inflammatory lessons and presentations that are detrimental to the mission and morale of the U.S. Army. So West Point is, those of you who don't know, West Point is the uh, otherwise known as the United States Military Academy. I think it's the longest, it's the, I think it's the, it's the oldest active army facility in the United States of America. It was set up by George Washington in the Heights above Hudson. Uh, and uh and it's where, as I said, our rising generation of leaders for the Army are go to train. We ask for copies of all diversity, inclusion, and equity training materials for first-year cadets entering West Point. And copies of all contracts between the uh, U.S. Military Academy and any organization or company responsible for coordinating, implementing diversity, inclusion, and equity programs and training for cadets the Military Academy. So it's not just what's being taught, but who's be doing the teaching. And what happens is they often outsource to uh, uh, groups or organizations, or I should, I should say uh, businesses, really. It's a business that do this type of training. And it's a, it's a crock. <laughs> I mean, it's dangerous, but there are many people who are happy to kind of take critical race theory and it's very antecedents and um, precedents and, and put it all together and use it to train people. This is what uh, Congressman Waltz wrote to West to to um, to the super superintendent of West Point. Information has recently come to my attention from unsettled soldiers, cadets, and families. There raise serious concerns about the U.S. Army's introduction of elements of critical race theory and cadet instruction. In February this year, I understand the U.S. Military Academy, under your leadership, required cadets to attend a mandatory seminar on, quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion, unquote. According to the schedule I received, cadets must attend at least one of the seminars. I was provided a presentation slide from one of the workshops with the title, White Power at West Point and Racist Dog Whistles at West Point. Additionally, another presentation shared with me depicted a lecture by Dr. Carol Anderson of Emory University with the title, Understanding Whiteness and White Rage. So this uh, training is obviously CRT training, and it's designed to propagandize and uh, a racially target entire categories of people at West Point. Uh, they want to brainwash our incoming army officers. And as I said in our statement, critical race theory is racist, anti-American, and repackaged Marxism. It has no place in our military, let alone the storied heights of West Point. The Pentagon needly, needs to immediately follow the FOIA law so that American people can fully understand and stop the extremist indoctrination of the U.S. Army's rising leadership in West Point. Do you agree? Well, you know, call your congressman, call your senators, support Judicial Watch. 
they're going to keep on doing this unless they are stopped or exposed. And usually the stopping comes only after they're exposed. Because as you can see from the media and the kind of defensiveness of the left on this issue, A, they're trying to say it's not critical race theory and uh, then they're trying to say, well, we're just teaching about slavery. We're not just teaching about slavery. That's obviously not the argument. They're trying to say it's a communist approach that you're inherently racist uh, based on your race if you're white. And if you're black you're, uh, or another minority, uh, you need to understand that you're oppressed simply by the color of your skin. There's nothing you can do about it. And that our whole system needs to be reorganized, generally along communist lines, to address that problem. That's what it's about. I'm sure it's, it's not a, it's, I'm not giving you a perfect analysis of it, but it's a good thumbnail. And they were teach, they're teaching in our military. They want to destroy our military. This is a revolutionary approach, revolutionary dogma, straight out of the Marxian, the Marxist playbook. I mean, we've been exposing it for years at Judicial Watch. Now we know it is critical race theory, but this racialist approach has been part of the left's agenda for years. And this is a good segue into our next story because it's not just a racialist approach, it's categorizing people by their immutable characteristics. Sex, race, other, ethnicity, sometimes age, right? Disability, it's all part of that mix to overturn the system. And in California, they decided that uh, they want women on the boards of directors in greater numbers. So rather than taking a lawful approach to encourage that women are represented in numbers that people think are appropriate by saying, for instance, okay, what sort of requirements do we have to get onto a corporate board of directors? Oh, shit. Well, are all those requirements necessary? Are they reasonable? Do they unfairly make it or unnecessarily make it harder for women to be considered or apply? You know, that's how you address some, some of the disparities to the extent they're there and need to be addressed. One way you can't address those disparities under law, assuming those disparities actually exist, and I don't think California even showed that, is require a quota based on gender or race or something else. And that's what's going on in California. And we sued to stop it because California state law doesn't allow it. And we represent taxpayers in a case to try to stop that discriminatory activity from taking place. And we filed an excellent brief. Our, uh, my, uh, our attorney colleagues filed excellent briefs on this. We are at our case is asking a California court to rule that the state's quota for women on corporate boards is unconstitutional and we're seeking to permanently enjoin it. Now they tried to stop the case from moving forward and we beat that back, thankfully. So we're so now we're now coming around. You know, there's going to be a reckoning in court one way or another for this soon. We filed the case back in August of 2019, so now it's nearly two years. So, you know, it shows you that Judicial Watch, you know, we can't just, you know, a lot of folks who are online and start yelling about stuff, they move on. We don't move on. 
I mean, when we say we're investigating an issue or we file a lawsuit over, over an issue, we got to be careful, right? Because when you're in court, you're, you have to be able to pursue it beyond the latest media cycle or the latest internet news cycle. So Judicial Watch is doing the heavy lifting back beginning in 2019. I, I can guarantee you that the prep for the lawsuit took several months. And it won't end at least for another year, year and a half, practically speaking, even if we win. And I say that because, you know, when I come on and I talk about was Judicial Watch this FOIA or we did this lawsuit, there's a lot that goes into it. And we don't give up. You know, sometimes we have to give up. You don't always win in court. Or the court says, oh, no, they can withhold the document. You can't get it, Judicial Watch. But it takes time. So as I said, in July of last year, they said the case could proceed. They tried to shut the case down. They said that we had standing to sue under state law our clients. And so we were in discovery. And discovery means you exchange uh, documents. Uh, you take testimony, and both written, written and under oath. And this is what we argued in the case. There can be no doubt that SB 826, which is the gender corridor law, employs a suspect classification gender to differ differentiate between similarly situated persons, currently current and prospective members of corporate boards. The legislature has decided that there are not enough women on corporate boards for its liking. So it enacted SB 826, which requires that corporations have a minimum number of women on their boards. SBA 26 treats current and prospective board members not as individuals, but as members of two groups based on their gender. Women may compete for every position on a corporation's board, yet men are excluded from competing for, these, for, those, for those positions reserved for women. No matter how strong a male candidate's qualifications might be, he has never afforded the opportunity to compete with female candidates for every board position available, but instead must compete only for those board positions for which there is no gender preference. In this regard, SB 826 creates the same type of quota system for seats on corporate boards that was found to be unconstitutional for seats in the medical school class at issue in Regents of the University of California versus Backey. And Backey, I think I'm pronouncing it right, is uh, a famous uh, Supreme Court decision that uh, uh, explicitly prohibits racial quotas. Countering the state's claim that the quota is necessary to boost California's economy, this is all their excuse for discrimination, improve opportunities for women in the workplace by discriminating, and protect California taxpayers, shareholders, and retirees by discriminating, Judicial Watch argues the requirement of necessity is also absent. Does California really need to impose a gender-based quota on corporate boards to improve its economy, to improve opportunities for women in the workplace, to protect taxpayer shareholders, retirees, or improve corporate sus sustainability, or preserve public confidence? Are the tools available to the legislature really so weak or so limited that it must resort to gender discrimination to achieve those goals? To say such a claim is to refute it. Nothing in SB 826 legislative findings or legislative history demonstrates 
but the legislature had to resort to a gender-based quota system out of necessity to achieve its goals. And we say diversity for diversity's sake is never constitutional. I'll say it again. Diversity for diversity's sake is never constitutional. Quote, preferring members of any one group for no reason other than race or ethnic origin is discrimination for its own sake. This, the Constitution forbids. Quoting a case quoting the Supreme Court. Defendants' diversity for diversity's sake argument will not save SBA 26 blatantly unconstitutional quota. And of course, asserting that more women on corporate boards will add diversity merely perpetuates gender-based stereotypes about both women, men, and women. So it would have the opposite effect of what they supposedly desire. And they couldn't show any specific discrimination. They didn't provide any evidence of it. The legislature made no effort to identify specific past or present victims of alleged discrimination or to identify specific perpetrators of such discrimination. No specific victims or perps were identified in the legislative findings and the defendant was unable to identify any such victims Perps in response to interrogatories seeking this specific information. Interrogatories are questions that need to be responded to under oath. In response to an interrogatory asking the defendant to identify specific victims of discrimination, the defendant responded generically, identifying women, corporations, California taxpayers, and retirees, and shareholders and investors, as well as the economy. So we highlight the law is not actually remedial does not restore victims of alleged discrimination to the position they would have occupied absent discrimination because no effort has been made to limit the legislation's remedy to such victims. It can't withstand strict scrutiny, which is the type of scrutiny legal analysis to quote will bring it. You know, and Governor Brown, the former governor of California, he knew this was bad when he signed it. He said, he wrote in his signing statement, Serious legal concerns have been raised to the legislation. I don't minimize the potential flaws that may indeed prove fatal to its ultimate implementation. To sign the bill anyway, noting, nevertheless, recent events in Washington, D.C. and beyond make it crystal clear that many are not getting the message. So Brown, in contradicting his oath to office, signed a law he knew was illegal because Donald Trump was in office. I mean, Donald Trump has been used to justify leftist lawlessness in so many ways. And you think it's just in D.C.? No, California pointed to Donald Trump being president to require illegal quotas for women on the corporate boards. They thought that would be a justification. Constitution be hanged. Not a single dime of California's taxpayers' money should be going to support a law that requires sex discrimination. The law is not only unconstitutional, but but morally wrong. So when we oppose quotas, we are on the side of moral right, and the other side is on the side of a moral wrong. So our clients are asking the courts, their taxpayers, who don't want tax dollars spent on 
enforcing and promulgating an illegal law. California's Constitution prohibits sex discrimination. So we're just asking for the court to apply the Constitution here. Now, we also have another lawsuit because gender quotas were it wasn't enough for the leftists running the legislature. They passed a bill subsequent for uh, quotas related to race, ethnic, and sexual preference. Oh, and transgender status. So there are quotas for that we're challenging. And there's a new game afoot at the federal level, the Securities Exchange Commission, to allow NASDAQ essentially to require race and gender quotas on the boards of corporations listed on the NASDAQ exchange. They say they're not enforceable, but Essentially, it's practically speaking, it is, uh, they're not not mandatory, but practically speaking, they are. So this is, this is what Judicial Watch does. Isn't it great? And, uh, you know, everyone thinks the left, well, they're civil rights leaders on the left. I'm a civil rights leader. Our lawyers are civil rights lawyers. These are civil rights we're advocating for. Frankly, Judicial Watch does more true civil rights work than many of the organizations that the media will sell. That's a civil rights organization. Judicial Watch is a civil rights organization. I'm a civil rights leader. And you support a civil rights group. Just remember that. I'm sure the left will go crazy. (laughs) I'm sure I'll get an angry tweet or two or social media post because Tom Fitton said he's a civil rights leader. It's true. We're defending the First Amendment rights of Americans. Fourth Amendment, we've defended the Fourth Amendment rights of Americans. We're demanding accountability from our government for violations of civil rights. It's what civil rights leaders and organizations do. I'm proud of it. (sighs) We got a lot going on. We are busy. And I'll tell you, as an aside, this is, again, I'm now on the president of Judicial Watch. This is what I love about Judicial Watch. We're just kind of, we're kind of always doing everything. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just like you. A lot of my colleagues are just like you. And you're reading a newspaper or you're seeing a story online and you say, boy, what's going on there? That's outrageous. And what's great about Judicial Watch is you see all these terrible things going on. Questions you have about evident corruption. Why isn't anyone doing anything about it? And I get to go into the office. My colleagues get to come into the office and do something about it. And so we're investigating everything. And I say that half jokingly, but not really. There's nothing we're not investigating. And to that end, we've got a series of FOIA requests and lawsuits that the left fears to file. And the media refuses to ask questions about, about COVID, about China, about Wuhan, about all sorts of things related to the response to the COVID epidemic and its origins and the corruption associated with um, the handling of uh the COVID pandemic. And as I've said before, we get documents that no one else is able to get. For instance, we got documents about the funding of Wuhan showing it was longer 
in time and more extensive than Fauci had testified to. Showing that the Wuhan Institute, the Institute of Virology, was asking our government for help on disinfectants. They did not have a good disinfectant for the level four lab. Completely crazy stuff. Found documents showing that Fauci personally approved a press release by WHO that went out of its way. They said, you know, please note, we praise China here. We especially praise China. And that China helped implement confidentiality terms related to our investigation of COVID. So the Chinese were telling government officials they couldn't tell the American people about what they were finding. And that one of those cases uh, was a um, case with the Daily Caller News Foundation that uncovered the funding. And you know, normally they talk about documents we uncover as a result of our litigation. In this case, uh, this latest batch of documents, they're giving us about 300 pages a month. They're slow rolling the release of the information. We found a bunch of emails, not so much what was in the emails that was interesting. It was what wasn't in the emails. The material that's redacted, often it's sometimes redacted in black. Um, I think some FOIA people in government realize it doesn't look to redact, doesn't look good to redact things in black. So now they just have a white, blank white space, uh, and um, and it includes emails by Fauci or from Fauci or to Fauci. It doesn't really matter, including um, material about his recommendations for uh, some COVID supplemental appropriations, I think, or emergency funding. And he said, my changes are unread. Well, it's all blacked out. And other things that are blacked out or, or redacted are, are some materials from WHO, the World Health Organization, about COVID. Now, that, now WHO is in a government enterprise. And they say it's B4. And as they tell us, exemption B4 is the exemption that was used to withhold the information. So what happens is you file a Freedom of Information Act request or a lawsuit or whatever. And when you get documents turned over, there are a variety of exemptions the government or privileges the government can assert in order to withhold information. Uh, one privilege is well known or exemption is B6. B6 is a privacy exemption. So it's used to black out someone's social security number or phone number or, or private email address. Uh, another exemption is B4, which is designed typically to protect disclosure of trade secrets and commercial or financial information as privileged and confidential. And that's the exemption they gave to WHO or the exemption they used to withhold information from WHO. So they concocted, in my view, improperly, this exemption to protect information from WHO from being disclosed about the China COVID Fauci communications. Now, the Fauci email material about his, his red line, his red recommendations on funding were withheld under Exemption 5, which is like the worst exemption. I say it's the worst exemption because, as they say, it permits the withholding of internal government records, which are pre-decisional and contain staff advice, opinion, and recommendations. So as you can imagine, that's an exemption you can drive a truck through. Everything 
the government does, much of it is pre-decisional, right? And they don't want that coming out because it would chill government deliberations. But from a government, from a public perspective, it would actually inform our ability to evaluate government deliberations and, and probably make the government more efficient and careful about its deliberations. But the courts have interpreted differently. But you should know, though, that this decision to withhold those voucher materials based on the B-5 exemption, it's not like a required withholding. It's discretionary. Like if they gave us someone's social security number, they, they would probably have some, I shouldn't say they probably would. I, I'm not a lawyer and I know enough that not being a lawyer, you never know whether there's liability, but it, it's, it's arguably they're mandated to withhold someone's social security number. But this B-5 thing, it's in the eye of the beholder that they can release and waive. All, they do that all the time. Sometimes you get stuff that you're reading. It's like, this is covered by B-5. Why are they releasing it to us? I remember in the Clinton emails, they were giving us what I thought would look to be classified material. And I think they weren't making it classified because they didn't want to embarrass Hillary by having too much classified information in her emails. So it's discretionary. So as I say, you know, this sort of hiding, dodging, and stonewalling is one reason why trust in national authorities is at a, a low time near an all-time low. Fauci's agency is in stonewall mode and has granted the corrupted WHO a special secrecy exemption from FOIA. So I want you to remember that the next time you see Fauci testify, he was testifying, got into a fight with Rand Paul, the senator, over um, Fauci's dissembling on Wuhan funding and gain-of-function research. Where are the documents, Dr. Fauci? Where are the documents? Why are you withholding them? Why are they being slow-rolled? He's head of the agency. He's directly involved in the release of this information. The government told us that. He and his top team. And now they're giving keeping what he did secret, and they're helping WHO be protected from scrutiny by the American people. So that's what heavy lifting looks like. And we're happy to do the work. We've got a lot of COVID materials that we're still pursuing and getting. Uh, and as I said, there's virtually nothing we're not investigating or suing over. So you can trust Judicial Watch to be there for you, the American people. The holding government to account has much of our other major institutions and uh, organizations associated with civic life drop the ball or frankly hide the ball. With that, I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.